Uncle Luke, show me the way to go home. Home is where God is. And now, the essential question that Jesus gives us is, who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Well, come on in. Let's check it out. He'll give an answer. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 27. All the bubbas of the world. We got one mission in mind. Welcome to the Bubblical Channel. Always glad somebody is showing up. Please stick around, have it a go, give it a tumble, because all we want to do is help people read their Bible better. We're convinced that if you read your Bible better, well, then everything's going to go better. Say your prayers, get together with other people, learn how to talk God as Jesus talks God. And the reason why Jesus talks God is, well, come on in, let's check that all out together. But this channel is all about the bubbas of the world, the common man, the common people, the, you know, just the average ordinary girl, the peasant girl, the, uh, well, hardy peasant stock of the world, because that is who God is after. That is who the whole Bible is written to. That's who all the characters in the Bible are. They are the blue collar workers of the world. And it is the blue collars of the workers of the world that have carried the ball of Christianity forward. Forget about them fun suckers. Anyhow, let's come on in. Check this thing out um, to all the bubbas of the world. Let's talk God. Before we go any further, we always pray the way, you know, peasants pray. Peasant Mary, peasant Jesus. Oh, anyhow, let's just do it. My soul magnifies the Lord, as Mary says. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. If a peasant girl says that, I ought to, too. For he looked on the humble estate of a servant. He's done mighty great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Peasant Jesus says, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day your daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Bam! That's the best prayer ever because Jesus gave it to us. Anyhow, let's dive in. Let's dive in to Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 27. Let's give it a read. It's a long passage, but it all fits together, I promise. And we'll uh, talk about why and how. Anyhow, the scene moves on um, and it goes like this. Jesus called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no tuna, no, not even two tunics. No, no, no. And, and whatever house you enter, stay there. Don't depart. And wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, you shake the dust off your feet. Uh, as a from your sandals or off your feet as a testimony against them. <laughs> and they departed and they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about what was happening and he was perplexed. And he said to some, uh, he, he, he was perplexed. And, and, and some said John had been raised by the dead or from the dead. And, and some said, well, Elijah has appeared. And others said, no, 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 it's one of the prophets of old. And Herod said, well, wait a minute, John, I beheaded. Um, but who is this that I hear such things? And he sought to see him, allegedly. On their return, the apostles told Jesus what they had done. And he took them and he withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned of it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. 
Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him, and they said, Hey, send the crowd away to the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions because, hey, we're here in a desolate place. Jesus said to them, Hey, you give them something to eat. They said, Ah, uh, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. That's not counting the women and the children, by the way. And they did so. And Jesus said to them, you know what? Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did it. They all sat down and taking five loaves and two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them, broke the, the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked the disciples, Jesus did, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, they answered, John the Baptist? No, others say Elijah. Um, and others say that one of the prophets has risen. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. But then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and the third day be raised. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life and lose it, Whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in all of his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Bam. End scene. Okay, let's pull this whole thing together. And the question that is driving this passage is, who do you say that I am? And it's Jesus speaking. Jesus is asking that question to everybody. Who do you say that I am? And so uh, uh, the first you know, round goes to uh, Herod, who's scratching his head saying, hey, who is this guy? Um, and then, and then, you know, all the confusion breaks out. Some are saying John the Baptist raised up. <laughs> He's like, nah, come on. I, I beheaded that guy. Who is this guy? Um, and then Jesus asks, uh, the disciples to explain to him who the crowd thinks he is. And again, you get the same answers. Um, but again, that question is that Jesus is asking, he says, but who do you say that I am? Peter Jumps up on a hickory stump, supposedly. Uh, I mean, not supposedly, but you know, the, you know what I mean. And he says to Christ of God, which is the right answer. And Jesus says, okay, hush. Silence. Don't, don't go running around saying that. Because, and the reason is because there's a lot more that they need to know. And what they need to know is what Christ says next. But let's go back to the top. First of all, very exciting moment for the disciples. The 12 and the new dirty dozen as uh, we earlier called them, because it's very important to understand that the first dirty dozen was a dirty dozen. Abraham and his, uh, you know, his, his child and then his, his grandchild and, and his grandchild's children 
were the 12 that became the representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. But if you take a close look at that in our Genesis series where we did just that, you find that these were not extraordinary people. In fact, they were, they were marginal at best. So the dirty dozen is God's thumbprint, and the new dirty dozen that Jesus has picked is the replacement for the old dirty dozen. So the old dirty dozen has been put on notice. The new dirty dozen is now the object of Jesus' training. And so this new dirty dozen, Jesus get, and when I say these are the new dirty dozen, Peter, James, John, you're talking about fishermen. You're talking about blue-collar workers. You're talking about guys who have hands that might actually hurt you in today's modern world. Like for most of us modern people, our hands are so soft. If we would have shook hands with Peter, damn, we, we might've gotten, you know, like a cut or a, I don't know. It'd been rough because he's a fisherman. He's a blue collar. He's a tough guy. He's no, he's no, uh, you know, office sweet kind of guy. Anyhow, that's Jesus crowd. And that's who he runs with too. The blue collar of life, the, uh, the hardy peasant stock. That's who Jesus runs with. And that's why we need to understand them as the new dirty dozen. But now the new dirty dozen is being called by Jesus to go into the villages, the surrounding countryside, and to preach the kingdom of God. And he gives them the very powers that he has been demonstrating himself. Pretty exciting times for the new dirty dozen. Um, and exciting they are because they, they come back and they're like, holy stamoli, you know, that was great stuff. Okay, but so so Jesus is making it clear that the future followers of him will indeed bring the good news of the kingdom of God. So it's going to start with the first, with the 12, and then all of the disciples, including the ladies. But the weight and the responsibility of explaining the kingdom of God is clearly going to be on Jesus' followers, that it's not for them to keep a secret, it's for them to proclaim. In fact, last week we saw that Jesus toys around with this. You know, I got a secret for you. It's a secret about the kingdom of God, but it's no secret at all because it's meant to be like a light that you put in a room to get light. And so the kingdom of God is meant to be shown to the, to the world around. So it's useful. And so this is what it looks like for that, you know, for the you know, gospel, for the kingdom of God to be like a light that's useful. It needs people to go around and explaining. And so Jesus gives his own very powers to the disciples to earmark them as his. Clearly, Jesus has the reputation of, of healing and doing some wild and outlandish stuff, um, you know, healing, exercising demons, um, and even raising the dead. Jesus gives them his powers. Why? So that they can be big shots? No. So that they can be identified as Jesus' followers. So that's exactly what happens. And, you know, the, the paradigm for us today is not that to become a follower of Jesus is that you're going to get all the powers of Jesus. No, that's a, a, you know, that's reading your Bible terribly. It's that these guys, you know, were the direct followers of Jesus who were given the powers of Jesus and thereby given the power to preach the gospel as well. You and I are given the power to preach the gospel. So we can do it and we should do it. But the other thing to take notice is the violence that Jesus calls for. Did you hear it? Did you hear about the violence that Jesus called? You know, Jesus, he is a rebel rouser, baby. And he tells them, hey, if you get rejected by a village, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take off your sandals. I want you to shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. 
<laughs> Come on, man. Listen, this is very important to see because any violence that was ever done in the name of Jesus, and there has been some, absolutely, there has been some, and, and most of it has been trumped up, but, but there has clearly been violence done in the name of Jesus. It's all wrong. It's all wrong. You know, Peter whacks off a soldier's ear later on in the Gospels, and, and Jesus, like, picks it up, sticks it on the guy, and says, hey, sorry about that. We're not doing that. Um, okay, so here, shaking the dust off your feet is as violent as it gets when it comes to Jesus and his disciples. If your violence is more than that, baby, you're wrong. Stop it. Well, don't do it in Jesus' name. That's for sure. Don't do it in Jesus' name. This world might drive you nuts, and it might even drive you to defend yourself. Like my t-shirt explains. You know, if we're going to die, let's at least die for our rights, which we'll explain in a minute. But this world will drive you to violence at times. But responding back in violence, don't do it in Jesus' name. Just do it in the name of defending yourself. Move on. Say you're sorry. Try to restore things. But, but listen, Jesus does not call for violence. I got bad news for everybody. He doesn't give a wink, wink, go ahead and, and slaughter anybody. He doesn't give a wink, wink, go ahead and punch that guy in the nose. No, sir. No, ma'am. Doesn't work like that. So anyhow, the next scene that breaks out is Herod, and, and it just shows us that the old dirty dozen is clueless. So here's Herod, the Tetrarch. He is the man in charge of Israel, like he is the king of Israel. He ain't got a clue. He's clueless. So don't follow old Israel at this point. Follow Jesus, who has established his new Israel, his new dirty dozen. So move on. Now, the scene then breaks out into the famous, you know, fishes and loaves scene. And at this point, I just got to tell you, if, if you, if, if, if you can't read the text and understand that Jesus is God and that when he does a miracle like this, that he's God, well, you're going to, I don't know, you're, you're, you're going to end up, I guess, being mad about it all. But if you understand that the humor in the text is that Jesus is God and he is giving these extraordinary powers over to his disciples who kind of, you know, they're, they're you know, they're kind of getting it and they're kind of not getting it. This is what I love about Jesus uh, guys, the guys that Jesus would pick and then tell the story to us would be guys that would tell the story in a way that never puts them in the most positive of light. Um, it, it, it shows them as being, you know, pretty clueless, like we would have been, like everybody was. It does not put them in, in some sort of like we were the geniuses. No, no, nope, nope. Jesus picked the dumbasses of the world to follow him, and, and, uh, and it's still that way. Me, you know, I'm a dumbass. Um, but I can get it if I think about it long enough and if somebody explains it slow enough. So anyhow, this scene gets really funny. Because these guys just got off of a preaching tour where they were healing people and doing all these spectacular things. And then they come to Jesus and they're like, oh, hey, Jesus, you know, we need to turn the crowds away. And they just, hey, listen, they've been watching Jesus preach the kingdom of God like he told them to do and, and healing people like he told them to do, right? So now he's doing it himself. And, and then night comes or evening is coming. He's like, hey, you better send everybody away because we ain't got enough food. And Jesus is like, uh, uh, that's funny. He says, I tell you what, have them all sit in fifties. 
And they're like, oh, all right, whatever you say, man. But, you know, these guys are getting hungry. Um, and, and there we have the miracle breaking out. But it's more than just a miracle, and it's more than about fishes and loaves. It's Moses all over again, isn't it? Because if you read the old part of the Bible, one of the more spectacular moments is how God provides for his people out in the desert with manna, manna from heaven, some sort of bread from heaven that appears out of nowhere. So can't you see what's going on here? Jesus is presenting himself once again as the guy that Moses was talking about who is better than him and was to come. Jesus is, is, is imitating things that Moses did so that we could read into who Jesus is. And, and that is, he's sent by God, baby. And, and this time it's fish and bread, not manna. I don't know about you, but it didn't seem like the Israelites loved that manna. Um, they didn't think it was the tastiest stuff on the planet. Um, but it was meant to sustain them. That's all it was meant to do is sustain them, keep them from starving, to fill their belly. It wasn't meant to, to, to make them, you know, it wasn't like a banana cream pie. No, it wasn't like that. No, no. But fish and bread sure sounds better than manna to me. And so this time Jesus, you know, replicates the fish and the bread out of a tiny amount to satisfy what's probably 5,000 men. So you got to add at least that many women and children. Um, so it's probably more like, t- you know, 12,000, 15,000. Who knows? I don't know. But it's a lot of people. Um, and it's God. Jesus has established over and over and over again that he is sent by God and, and he has all the authority of God. And so you should be concluding by now that, well, maybe the doggone guy's God. Anyhow, moving on. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who the crowd say that I am? And you get the same bizarre answers that, um, you know, Herod the Tetrarch was given. And then Peter says, when Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, the Christ of God. And amen, brother, that's the right answer. But then Jesus throws a wrench in in the machine um, that is going to break it forever. The, The wrench that Jesus throws in is that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and then raised on the third day. Nobody gets what Jesus is talking about. Everybody's like, are you kidding me? This is the worst thing you could have said. Why, why would you die? You're the Christ of God. The kingdom of God is coming. We've been preaching about the kingdom of God coming. And, 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 and you're the Christ of God. And you're not denying it. So what do you mean you're going to die? The whole tension of Jesus Christ is that he dies. The reason why the Muslims, you know, cannot for a second believe that Jesus is God is because he dies. The reason why the Jews cannot believe that Jesus is God is because he dies, even today. And everybody else, for that matter, cannot believe that Jesus is God because he dies. So this is still the hot point of contention today, as much as it was for the original cast and crew. They were like scratching their head and they're like, no way. But Jesus doubles down on throwing his wrench into the machine. Because not only that, but the Christ of God, who is the Son of Man, by the way, the Daniel figure, you know, from one of the old prophets, you know, in the book of Daniel, the Christ of God is the Son of Man, and he is going to suffer defeat. He's going to suffer defeat, death, but he is going to rise on the third day. But believe me, nobody hears the rise on the third day bit. All they hear is suffer defeat and die. And they're thinking to themselves, just like we think to ourselves, I don't know. I don't, does that make any sense? And then Jesus doubles down on it by saying, all my followers, everybody who follows me, I want you to take up your own cross. And at this point, you know, the cross, you got to understand, this is a Roman criminal 
penalty thing. So he's predicting his own death on the cross, um, you know, on a Roman cross. But he's saying, he's saying at this point, everybody that follows me, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. You're going to have to lose your life in order to save your life. Um, and if you're ashamed of me and my words, well, you're going to force God's hands to be ashamed of you as well. Again, Jesus puts all of the action on himself. The Christ's death and resurrection is the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God clearly is the reestablishment of God's reign on earth. But that's what the death and resurrection of Jesus is doing, establishing God's reign on earth. Yes, there's a real kingdom coming. Yes, the whole entire earth is going to be remade. So says Jesus. And so Christians believe. But what Jesus is talking about is, is that the, you know, the world-changing information that he is giving us is that God's kingdom is going to be experienced on earth in Jesus' own defeat and his death. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a wrench beyond wrench, wrenches that get thrown into the proverbial machine because this world operates on strength and weakness. Only the strong survive. And what Jesus is throwing into the human machine is that God's ways are not human ways. God's ways is to show his strength through actual suffering and through actual death and an actual resurrection. That the ultimate picture of the kingdom of God is the picture of your own death and the picture of Jesus' death. Because that is the ultimate problem that we have, is that we are going to die. And so we need somebody, not with bravado and strength and some sort of mantra that says we're going to fight until we die. No, no, no. We need someone who actually beats death. And Jesus is going to defeat death and rise again. And he's also going to say that the kingdom of God here on earth right now among the kingdom of men is going to be his own cross, his own death, his own resurrection. And the problem with our world is that we want the kingdom of God. That's not a problem. But we don't want the king in the ways of the king. We want the kingdom of God but we want to do it through brawn and through might, through strength over the, weak, over the weak. But that's not the way the king of the kingdom of God says that the kingdom of man that we're experiencing right now is to experience God. To experience God is to experience the death and defeat of Jesus Christ and to take up his cross, your own cross, and to follow him in this world. And so that is what the big challenge is. That's what all the fuss is. You know, who do you say that I am? This is who I am, Jesus says. I am defeat and death and resurrection. I am the kingdom of God. And to those who are, are now worried that the kingdom of God ain't coming through Jesus, he says, oh, no, no, no. There's some standing right here. You're not going to die before you see the kingdom of God. But what's he talking about? He's talking about his own death and resurrection. He said, you'll see it. And you'll understand. And you'll then go preach the kingdom of God the right way. 
about me and all of that. Now, hold this thought for a second, and let's just admit, Christianity, for the first 300 years, was willing to deny itself and take up its crosses. That was its mode of operandi. It had no power. It had no substance in Rome's face. This was a great irritation to Rome. But that irritation to Rome would eventually conquer it. The people who were willing to deny themselves and take up their own crosses might have annoyed Rome, but eventually they defeated Rome because of their willingness to die. The cross itself in our world today, ladies and gentlemen, is the most widely recognized symbol of God that the world has ever known. And time itself has been marked out universally by Jesus Christ. B.C., A.D., those are Jesus' terms. You figure it out. When the, when, when the Japanese were defeated in 1945, who was it that was quoting Scripture? It wasn't Roosevelt and it wasn't Churchill. It was actually Chinese ruler Ching Kai-shek. Ching Kai-shek. He's the one who quoted Scripture. And that begs the question, how is it that people who were inspired by an obscure criminal's execution in the backwoods of Rome, a now-vanished empire, came to transform every culture in the world, even the Chinese culture. Who dreamed of the old world order of strength over weakness, being revolutionized by the principles of honoring the meek and the lowly, because they actually have the image of God too. Two billion people today, about a third of the world's population, See God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where's Zeus? Where's Odin? Where's Marmaduke? Where's all of them? Why didn't Ching Kai-shek, why didn't he quote Buddha or Confucius when the Japanese were defeated? The widespread consensus of right and wrong that we have has sprung from one place over the last 2,000 years. The teaching of Jesus Christ who suffered defeated, and died as a criminal. Even the most anti-humanitarian cultures of the world have had to bow to Christ's demands, at least publicly. China, Russia, who are responsible in the 20th centuries for, for as many as 50 million deaths, are called unacceptable in today's day. The fun suckers pretend in our universities and in our government that Christianity only brings superstitious into our superstitions into our world through those dark ages. But where was the light that brought us to this place that we're in today? Where was the light in those dark ages? I'll tell you where the light wasn't. The light was not in Rome. The light was not in the Persians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians. Those, they were as carnivorous as the doggone dinosaurs. No, no, no. Who was it that was championing the cause of the poor and the weak in those dark ages? Christians. Christians who were actually moving out of Europe as well. But holding on to this idea that the cause of the poor and the weak is what Christ commanded. The followers of a criminal executed by Rome without Rome hardly even noticing. The flood tide of Christ's demands pounds the shores of America, China, Africa, 
South America, North America, no matter where you are, the flood tide of Christ's demands pounds our shores like nothing else. That's why it's the greatest story ever told. Take up your cross daily and follow him is understood, basically, by a third of the world's population in every continent. You don't think that Jesus' cross and death and his resurrection are a powerful force? Well, you're just a fun sucker pretending like you got here on the backs of, of, of Marmaduke or Odin or Zeus or, or uh, your own free will. No, no, no. You got to the place that we're in today on Jesus Christ. This right here, man, you know, uh, of course, Native American, you know, um, uh, you know, saying these words, if, if we must die, let's die for our rights. The whole idea that human beings have rights, that doesn't come out of Rome or Assyria or Persia or anywhere in the East. That doesn't come from Buddha or Confucius. That comes from Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ. That comes from Christ crucified. The cross. The cross has changed our world. Be proud of that. Stand on the kingdom of God with great pride. And look your own death in the face and say, I'm with Jesus Christ who died and rose again. Let's do it. Catch you next time. Thank you.